Travel the world in search of stunning birds, breathtaking scenery, and fun camaraderie with the American Birding Association. Whether you're a seasoned birder or a novice, the ABA Travel Program promises top-notch birding, local expertise, cultural immersion, and a vibrant community of fellow birding enthusiasts. Don't miss your chance to travel to Belize with the ABA in March or to Hawaii in April and help us build a better future for birds, birders, and birding at the same time. Visit aba.org travel for more information and bookings. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. All of the world's emperor penguin colonies are now, at long last, accounted for. Perhaps you, like me when I discovered this news item, were not aware of the status of the breeding colonies of the world's largest penguin. Perhaps you get your emperor penguin intelligence from Morgan Freeman or from tap dancing cartoon characters. No judgment here. If so, it's a mysterious bird and not on many birders' radar. Not least of which, because they nest, somewhat famously, on what is called fast ice, which is sea ice that attaches to the coastline. It's an ephemeral phenomenon, all the more so in this age of climate change. But as it turns out, emperor penguin colonies can be found all the way around the periphery of the Antarctic continent, more or less evenly distributed about every 250 kilometers. But it's hard to monitor them as the species breeds during the Antarctic winter, not a pleasant time to be at the bottom of the world. So researchers use satellite technology, zeroing in on the patches of guano left behind by the concentrated flock of nesting birds, the stains of which can be seen from space, which is how they found four previously unknown emperor penguin colonies. The research done by Dr. Peter Fretwell of the British Antarctic Survey offers a lot of insight into the population dynamics of this iconic bird, suggesting that emperor penguins are a lot more flexible than previously thought. Perhaps you heard about the Halley Bay colony, which was wiped out by rapidly changing sea ice conditions in 2016. Thousands of young birds were lost when the fast ice unexpectedly broke apart. A tragic occurrence, for short, that got a lot of press at the time. But more recently, a pioneer group of birds from that colony have set up a nesting site nearby around a point that recently saw the calving of two large icebergs, which makes sense. Organisms that live in an environment as dynamic, as rapidly changing as Antarctica need to be able to be flexible. Can they be flexible enough in the face of a warming world over the longer term is the big and unavoidable question, but the short-term outlook is not as dire as all that. Link in the show notes, it's a fascinating article, always nice to learn about a bird that I was certainly aware of, but not all that informed on. On the show this week, Trish O'Kane is an environmental educator at the University of Vermont whose story of activism, problem-solving, and community building through birds and birding is recounted in her new memoir, Birding to Change the World. She was a guest many years ago, and she's back to talk about her experiences all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of February 2024. It has been quite a year for Eurasian thrushes in the ABA area with Red Wing in Nova Scotia and St. Pierre in Miquelon and 
Field Fair in Quebec and now Wisconsin, where it represents a first for that state. This highly migratory thrush is annual in North America, just about annual, with a number of records in recent years from both sides of the continent, though the majority certainly come from the Canadian Maritime Provinces and Quebec, especially along the St. Lawrence River. Records in the interior of the continent are far less common, however, and this Wisconsin record is only the second for the Western Great Lakes following a 1991 account in northern Minnesota. This year has also been notable for the number and variety of alcids coming down the East Coast. Murs, puffins, and dovekey have been seen in abnormally large numbers as far south as the Carolinas. And in Florida this month, at least two Atlantic puffins were discovered wrecked on beaches in Brevard and Miami-Dade counties, approximately the 7th and 8th records for that state. Both birds were taken to rehabilitation. The latter, unfortunately, did not survive. No word on the former. That is what I have this week for the full list. Check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. On this show, way back in 2019, I first spoke with Trisha Kane about the Birding to Change the World program she had instituted at the University of Vermont, where she is a lecturer and environmental educator because of an essay she had written for the New York Times. I'm thrilled to welcome her back to talk about her new memoir, appropriately titled Birding to Change the World, which recounts her journey from nascent bird obsessive to activist to environmental educator through the effort to protect the much-loved urban park in Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome back, Trish. I really enjoyed the book. Thank you, Nate. And thanks for the boost you gave me four years ago when we first... I'm so happy to hear that that, uh, that happened. It's hard to know. You, you send these uh, episodes and these interviews off into the wild, and you never know what happens to them after the fact. I'm glad to hear that it um, resulted in part, I guess, in this uh, really wonderful memoir that I think people are going to really enjoy. Um, just as sort of a starting off point and not to spoil what is a really affecting part of the book, um, can you give like a Cliff Notes version of your journey into birds? Sure, sure, Nate. Um, well, it's an unusual journey. I didn't discover birds until I was um, 45, really, 44. Um, it wasn't that I didn't like them. I just didn't <laughs> notice them. You yeah. know, I tell my students this today at, at the University of Vermont and they don't believe me. But um, what happened was I was a human rights investigative journalist. I was in Central America 10 years and I was in the Deep South for eight or nine years. I was living in New Orleans in 2005, teaching journalism at Loyola University, a wonderful place. And then I moved to the wrong neighborhood um, <laughs> and we got trashed by Katrina. Yeah. Uh, our house was had to be bulldozed and our neighborhood was totally destroyed and neighbors drowned. And that was the first time I realized, oh, I only focused on homo sapiens my whole life. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not the only game in town here. And like people are talking about this climate change thing. It wasn't real big then, but people were starting to talk about it. And I never thought about it. And I stood in the ruins of my home and thought, you know, I have no clue how to live on this planet without destroying it. Mm-hmm. And I was so depressed. I just felt like all everything I'd done was a waste. And that's where the birds came in. Um, had to evacuate and then went back to New Orleans a few months later to teach. And I woke up the first morning in the city and it was so strange. It was early in the morning and it was a city, but it was quiet. Mm-hmm. 
there was very little traffic and I realized, oh my God, people haven't come back. And that's why it's so quiet. And I felt really sad. And then I heard this clicking outside the window. I was like, what's that? And I looked out the window and there was a beautiful bright red cardinal. And I didn't know anything about cardinals, literally, except that the name was a cardinal. But I was so happy to see something alive in the city because many animals drowned. And that was it. That was that was my entry into birds was that first cardinal. And then people who are birders know I was. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's how it started. Yeah, you you write kind of early on that it was you know, witnessing the destruction after Katrina that caused you to sort of recognize that you'd just been passing through a yeah. lot of places that you'd lived and worked. Do you find that knowledge of bird life and sort of the wider natural world really grounds you in some of the places that you have ended up? Well, yes. And, and you know, when I was in Central America, I was connected. But again, it was really only to people and people mm-hmm. were very important. And I loved the landscape. I loved the tropics. But I ha- I never looked at birds in Central America. I don't even know what most of their names were. What what a waste, right? Yeah, right. I, oh, I can hit <laughs> myself. But, but now, as soon as I started noticing birds, like that cardinal in my yard post-Katrina, and then house sparrows, because I put up feeders, mm-hmm. I enjoyed them so much, I started thinking, well, what do they need? Right. Well, they need the bushes and noticing how they live. So, yes, I think birding viscerally connects you to your places because you want the birds to stay there. And then, you, like, I think about puddles, like, oh, there's puddles of water in the street and I see the birds drinking out yeah, of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's in that puddle? Is there oil from the car engines? Or, I mean, so I started thinking about everything. I was putting into the environment and how I lived and especially into the water because I'm struck by the way that you used, uh, you know, birds and nature exploration with your Loyola students. It's, it is very much of a place with this idea of kind of birding as, you know, ornotherapy is sort of the term that's been tossed around. Um, It's got a lot of attention since the pandemic, Um, or at least people are speaking about birding in more kind of explicitly mental health kind of terms these days. But it's been something that I think a lot of people, and you certainly kind of intuitively get, that when you're watching these birds, it is a way to reduce anxiety, reduce stress, to think about something other than your own sort of issues at, at that moment. And, you know, after Katrina, everyone had trauma that they were dealing with and, you know, with various success. And the way that you kind of took that and kind of built it into what was not necessarily an environmental writing course was really interesting. Like you, you are, you're touching on these themes that I think a lot of people are thinking about. Well, Nate, I stumbled into yeah. it. Yeah, uh, don't right? we all? <laughs> Purely, you know, I was teaching journalism there, and I think it was called mass communications in media or some class like that, right? And I had like 55 freshmen and they had to do a little paper once a week. There was nothing about nature in it. But, you know, when I realized I can't sit inside and stare at a screen and my students were distraught too. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was this gorgeous park across the street from Loyola, Audubon Park. And I, I just started going in there and, you know, I'm watching the birds in my yard in the morning because of my feeders. Then I'm going to Loyola and I'm going into the park every break I've got. Mm-hmm. And students start coming with me and sitting on the benches and eating lunch. 
And, and I just thought, this feels so good. And then I thought, well, I'll just start bringing them in here to write outside because the climate was so beautiful, right? It's in the winter time, which, you know, winter in New Orleans, which is like 75 degrees all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and then I saw all the birds and ducks in the park and thought, I don't know anything about these animals. And then an expert at the university, um, a friend took us in there and took us on a walk. And he's mentioned in the book. and that's when I started to connect the dots. But I never thought about as as ornotherapy or mm-hmm. a writing class. My students were also writing about the social injustices in the city after Katrina. Um, and that was a heavy focus of the class. So I thought, well, this will help give them a balance if I give them some nature writing. But I knew nothing about nature writing. I, I, I just... Again, I'm an accidental ornithologist and I'm an <laughs> accidental nature writing teacher. Do you think that that experience in Audubon Park was sort of the genesis of thinking about the importance of these sort of urban green spaces in gen- more generally and which, you know, carried forward to your work in Madison as well? Yes, Nate. I, I, I didn't make the connection for a while. But when I moved to Madison and we happened to buy a little house across the street from a wetland park, because it was in a neighborhood we could afford, and it was a neighborhood, a lower income neighborhood with some serious issues, but we could afford a house there, yeah. a FEMA loan, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah loans there you on go. Top of loans on top of loans. Um, and then I realized later when I started to write the book, oh, Warner Park was a lot like Audubon Park. So, of course, I was drawn to it and we were facing it. We had a big picture window in Madison looking out on it. Uh, Literally, the reason we probably bought that house was we looked out the window and saw that park and went, oh, we get to look at that every day and walk in it every day. Mm -hmm. Not just me, my husband as well, because he was very traumatized. He didn't even want to go back to New Orleans at all and ever. I went back by myself after the storm. We didn't, you know, like a lot of families separated, not separated in the sense of your relationship, but just separated temporarily because Mm -hmm. one person said, I got to go back. And the other was like, I can't go back. So when he saw Warner Park too, he fell in love with it as much as I did because it was healing us both and we didn't even realize it at first. What kind of people did you find using the park and did that begin to get your mind working towards these issues of how, one, how urban parks are important parts of these neighborhoods, and two, how that sort of manifests in social justice terms, which you have been working on, had been working on for decades before. Yes, yes, that was almost immediate. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of people were running through the park or biking through the park, moving through it. But because I was sitting still, and looking, I took an ornithology course and I was starting to do my homework and I was watching birds. Inevitably, I'd be looking at a bird and then I'd move my binoculars and there would be a person sitting on a bench, maybe a person with an oxygen tank beside mm-hmm. them and, or an older person with a cane or someone who had some kind of you know physical impairment or illness. And so I started talking to them and there, there are people that who are important in the book who became mm-hmm. like teachers. And I, when I talked to them, they told me they'd spend hours every day in the park, that their doctor told them yeah. to need to go spend time in that park because they lived around the park in an apartment without a yard, but that the park would be healing. And their doctor told them that. And so then I started thinking when I, when I discovered from a neighbor that the park, parts of it were going to be further developed. 
that, oh, this is a social injustice issue. Mm-hmm. Because these neighbors live in apartments without yards. This is their healing. This is their health care. This is their medicine. And then I realized it was mine too. And, and that's when it, re- they, they, and they taught me about the animals because they would sit there for hours and they would see so many things that I didn't notice. And, and so I started hanging out with a couple of people. And every time I'd see them in the park, I'd go over to Jan. He's Jan Einfield who died. Um, he was, um, he had worked in a, um, a factory. Um, he had COPD, mm-hmm. right? Serious lung problems. He's the one with the oxygen tank. He, the guy was a biologist. He didn't have a biology degree. Right. But right. he knew more than some of my professors did about the animals he was watching. And so, um, long answer, sorry. No, no, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> no, but your your background as an investigative journalist really shines in these sort of situations. Because I think that birders, sometimes we are guilty of focusing almost exclusively on the organisms in the park without always realizing that humans are organisms that are using this space as well and for whom it is a, an important space. And so when we are tasked with potential issues like development in the park that you feel like you want to do something, we can have sort of a, maybe a, a one-dimensional view of how that affects the people or the animals that use that park. And it's really useful, I found, in the in the book to think about the ways in which all these people are using the park in a way that is similar to or tangential to the way that birders use the park, but no less important in its own way. I mean, these, this, these green spaces are critical to everyone's well-being, be it me who's going around trying to you know, see my first of year chipping sparrow or whatever, or these people who are coming out there and fishing or searching mm-hmm. for acorns to grind into flour or fiddlehead ferns or whatever. Like everyone has a connection to these green spaces and finding out those connections was really effective in doing the work to fight these changes that were afoot. And I thought that was just really, really interesting and really, I mean, it, it changed the way maybe I look at these places and this this fight against um, I don't know development or or changes or harmful changes to the park. Thank you, Nate. You know, I, I want to stop using the word development because yeah. the park, yeah, it means different things. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking of concretization. Right there, you go. Yeah, right because that's what was being proposed, and it was a wetland. And coming from Louisiana, where we had just gone through wetland hell, mm-hmm. right? It just seems so incongruous that in this place something similar was going to happen. Yeah, well, I mean, there was develop, positive development after the fact, too. You know, re, right. redevelopment of the, the stream, you know, giving it its old path back or stopping mowing along the edges of, of a pond. This, that's all development, too. That's positive development. It's, right. it's an important point, yeah. Right, right. And and the reason, um, you know, those those the, those people, those park goers, they, they became my teachers because I didn't know anything mm-hmm. about birds. So, mm-hmm. I was just talking to them. I mean, birders might have got in there and don't talk to people because well, true. Well, sometimes we're bad with that. <laughs> but I do nothing. Like yeah. Every person I saw who was spending time in there was a potential teacher, yeah. and I'm so curious. Um, and I try to maintain that curiosity, but after you've been a birder for a while, you do. You just want to go and sometimes enjoy it's birds. true. It's true. And that's always the best thing for the birds. I guess. I guess I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Can you describe? Warner Park and how you used to use it. Yeah. What a beautiful place. What a special, special place. Um, it's about 200 acres. 
And it's on the Madison's North Side. It's literally called the North Side. And it has a uh, wetland that is just, I don't know, 100, 200 feet from Lake Mendota, which mm-hmm. is Madison's largest lake. So the wetland serves as a filter um, for that lake, a very important filter. It's um, half of it, about 100 acres, are really, really developed in the sense of buildings and sports facilities. It has a 32,000 plus uh, square foot community center, which is very important, Mm -hmm. very beautiful, um, with all kinds of services and programs and and sports. Sports fields, it has a huge baseball stadium, um, very loud rock concerts and all that. Uh, And then it has the wild side, 100 acres that were sort of left alone. Um, but then, of course, there were all kinds of city plans to to change that. And that's where that's where um, when I moved there and discovered that that's where we started organizing. But it's a really interesting place because I left Louisiana sort of with the burning burning research question. I was going back to graduate school. And my question was, can we live on this planet? Or was a question for myself. Can I live on this planet without destroying it? And can I share it with these creatures who I, and I need them, right? But I I really was in despair. And I thought, I I don't think we could do it. I don't think Mm -hmm. we're up to this as a species. And then I started walking in Warner Park every day. And I'd walk on the railroad tracks and I'd see the fox with her kids running along the railroad tracks. Like, wait a minute, what is she doing on the railroad tracks? Then I found a killdeer's nest right off the tracks. And the killdeer did her, um, you know, her display, her wounded wing display and, and the whole thing. And so I, and then there were the turtles coming out of the wetland, climbing up the um, the banks of the railroad tracks and laying their eggs along the embankments, mm-hmm. massive snapping turtles. So suddenly I realized, because I had this, I think most of us in the United States anyway, in a Western kind of civilization think nature separate from us. Exactly. And I had that same wall in my head. Mm-hmm. But I stepped into Warner Park and that wall just got busted down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the fox would nap on the tennis courts. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, should those tennis courts shouldn't be on the edge of oak woods. And it's like, well, wait a minute. They're there. Kids use them. And the fox uses them, too. Yeah. Right. So the animals were all over the park. Yeah. You read about the great horned owl making a nest like off the park next to a a tenement building. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And also, you know, the red tailed hawk in the middle of a baseball game would fly Mm -hmm. with the squirrel and people would be like, whoa, what's going on here? And the the red tailed hawks loved the lighting on top of the baseball stadium. I don't Mm -hmm. know if baseball people like that. (laughs) Yeah, right. But so, so the animals that taught me that, oh, this separation is totally false mm-hmm. we can share these spaces. If we pay attention, how do the animals use them? How do we use them? How can we make those uses compatible? And how can we not be so greedy mm-hmm. in our usage of land and water? I think it's that separation or that feeling that people have that nature is separate from human that makes them feel like they can be a little bit greedy when they have these green spaces because they look at a, a place that's, you know, half of sports fields and community centers in a baseball stadium. And they look at the other half and it's just maybe somewhat dingy looking pond and they think there's no nature there. When, of course, when you're a naturalist or a birder, you know that that's absolutely not the case. Like there are there are birds and there is nature everywhere. And once you kind of the scales fall from your eyes and you turn into a, a naturalist and you see that stuff, it's, it becomes um, it becomes especially 
apparent. I mean, I, I was, um, as a child, uh, a ravenous consumer of nature documentaries. And I think nature documentaries are sometimes can be kind of misleading because they give the impression that all this cool stuff is over there yeah. and it's not over here where you are. And it can be incredibly, I don't know, freeing for people to know that the cool stuff that's happening in those nature documentaries is also happening in the park across the street. And and the thing with nature documentaries, the children I work with today in Vermont and worked mm-hmm. with in Madison, they love them too. Yeah. And, and it, it can, I think they're great. I love them too, but mm-hmm. it can be a problem because they step outside and they expect to see that, right? Yeah. I've had people <laughs> at the school say to me, you should call this the extreme science club, extreme. not the garden club. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm like, no, there's nothing to dream <laughs> about this, okay? Some days are really going to be seen boring. Are, they're slow, yeah. <laughs> but they're not boring, right? Yeah. And so, you know, you have to get used to quiet and slow. Yeah. But if you feel better, you get addicted to that. Mm-hmm. Right? That's true. It's true. You write a lot about the sort of ongoing everyday effort of dealing with city governments and all of its sort of mundane glory. Um, <laughs> what was the most difficult part of all that? Was it staying engaged? Was it the inertia of the status quo? Was it trying to, you know, get these people to understand the the wonder that was Warner Park? Well, I think I was lucky because Madison is a place with really a wonderful parks department. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people working in it um, who had came come from the university. Some had ecology backgrounds. So so the people, once I got to know them and they once they saw the bird list, some of yeah. them got very excited and almost immediately became allies. Mm-hmm. I think the hardest thing was this feeling, and maybe a lot of people have it now, that that there's just this huge machine out there that's mowing us all down and we can't stop it. And it was like this idea that any development, meaning building, is good. And it was like, wait a minute, we can have development by having education programs. We don't Mm -hmm. need a building for that. What we need is organizing. We Mm -hmm. need building relationships with the schools and the kids in the neighborhood and the university. That doesn't require any more building. Mm Right. So, but I, sometimes I felt, and my husband did too, like, because it's driven by money and because some elected officials, you know, they want to show they've done something. Right. Yeah. A building is very tangible or a paved road or a bigger bridge or accomplishment you can point to. Yeah. Instead of a program. um, And, you know, but I was lucky after a while, we fought a lot, but the city councilor really did genuinely want it programs for the kids. Mm -hmm. And so she, to her credit, she's now mayor of Madison, by the way, to her credit, she, after a couple of months of being pretty mad at me, she changed her position, met with me, and she, she helped me. How do you get people to change their position? Feels like it's very hard to get people to change. Yes. Well, you know, I should, preface that by saying we still fought for like five years. <laughs> it takes time. That's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> like she, I think she was waiting to see, is this person for real? Fair I mean, enough. Yeah. 
seemed like a spoiled enviro PhD student and she didn't know my background in social justice. And, you know, you have to prove things to people. You can't just yeah. say, oh, I'm 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 a person of conscience and I care about social justice. That doesn't mean anything. They have probably seen plenty of people who come out firing and kind of fade away after six months or so. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, once I delivered, um, then then I think she her position began to shift a bit and she had other issues to deal with. But your question is, you know, how do you get people to change? I I think arguing and debating, well. We here's what we did. We organized. Yeah. My in my dining room one Sunday afternoon, I made two apple pies and eight neighbors came over. And that was the beginning of Wild Warner. So we did debate and we did argue and we fought hard for five years. And that group still exists and they're still fighting for Warner Park. And they're amazing people. So first of all, we organized and that's the first thing you have to do. But we did it with a lot of joy. And every single meeting, we had one meeting a month for years. They still do. Um, we started with celebrating the animals and telling stories about the animals. What did we see in the park this last month? And I still start my classes that way with bird stories. So I think you start to, it's not getting people to change. It's just getting them to see what is there, what is invisible for some reason or another. And when they see it, they themselves begin to think a little differently. You're not going to convince them by arguing with them, mm -hmm. but you do have to organize to defend your place, just like the birds defend their places by yeah. singing loudly. Yeah, <laughs> and mobbing. As, as mobbing, <laughs> right? Uh, did you find that birding and, and birds in general were sort of an effective way to break that barrier? There were a couple different moments in, in the book where you talked about you saw an American bittern in the park and told the counselor about that. And that suddenly was like, Oh, Oh, a bittern. Oh, well that's something really special or, or a woodcock or things of that nature. Birding people are interested in that people or even bird adjacent people are sort of interested in that stuff. And, and knowing that those wild things are so near is, is can be, you know, pretty affecting, I think. Yeah. Well, the counselor didn't really care about that at all. I think <laughs> he had the same attitude towards birds and birders that I did. Yeah. Before <laughs> Katrina, like the bird people, they're weird. <laughs> Well-intentioned, but weird. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't care about humanity and all those stereotypes. Yeah. I have them and she had them. But the president, president the that's right. commission, yeah. Bill mm -hmm. Barker, he was a geologist. He came from the university and he was a birder on steroids. Yeah. And he was the one when he, when I said, I found an American bitter in this morning in a public meeting. People had no idea what I was talking about, but he was riveted. Yeah. And he became an ally that night. And that was absolutely, five years later, you know, he helped us stop a mayor, the largest fireworks show in the Midwest because they were blowing up that wetland every summer. Insane. The bird's nesting grounds. That was him. So that was, you know, having bird people in high position. I mean, he was a part, the president of the Parks Commission. Birders need to be in these offices. Yeah. They are so important, these positions. I had no clue even what a parks commission was. And I have so much respect for them. They're, you know, they're volunteers. They have full-time jobs and families and mm -hmm. they will there many, many nights till after midnight. I mean, some pretty wild, raucous meetings we had there in Madison. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. I want to talk a little bit about the the birding, the, the program with the with the children. Um, how did that change the way that you saw the park? 
Well, it, I mean, I was just out with our kids here in Vermont on Wednesday, and uh, we were tromping along a riverbank on our way out after three hours in the cold. It was only 21 degrees. The kids didn't complain. And an eagle came barreling down the river mm-hmm. corridor and flew right over us. I mean, practically winked at us. Like the kids just stopped and they just, everyone was quiet. This is 50 people, mm-hmm. 25 college students and 25 kids who were always screaming. And it was suddenly we were in church and we were all looking at each other like, did that just happen? Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the kids helped me appreciate like in Warner Park, they'd see a big bird, like a sandhill crane. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they weren't interested in the small birds. And most of the kids I work with really aren't interested in birds. But if they see a big bird that's their size. Big birds are crowd pleasers for sure. Oh, wow. They are so (laughs) interested. And if they see a chick, you know, a sandhill crane that's smaller and they realize, oh, that that crane is like It's like the child, right, of the parents. Um, But the kids also help me appreciate so many things uh, like dead animals, right? (laughs) I mean, if you have children, you know, I yep. don't have children. So I, I, I mean, you have children. I have kids and I have done my time as a counselor at a nature camp. And uh, yeah, you are absolutely right. Dead things are, man, they go for that stuff. And they don't have the separation in their brain that we do of, you know, nature's here and humans are there. I mean, mm-hmm. all in, in Warner Park, they go out and find a place where people had been illegally camping or whatever. You know, people who didn't have a place to stay, they'd find it in the thicket. And of course, they'd find all kinds of wild stuff in there. <laughs> and for them, they bring it to the sharing circle around our mother burrow that we always had at the end. You know, to them, that half-used lipstick or, you know, other things I won't even mention, um, <laughs> were just as interesting yeah. or more interesting, right? It was nature to yeah. them. And so they, for, they again, helped bring down that wall in my brain and also see Warner Park as this huge playground for big people and little people. Mm-hmm. You devote a chapter to the ways in which we, in the environmental world, have segregated birding and nature study from more you know, explicitly social justice issues. And that, that's certainly yeah. been brought to the forefront more in the last few years, uh, I think productively so, largely thanks to the efforts of non-white birders who are growing in numbers and becoming more yeah. comfortable in our communities, pointing out these blind spots. Do you think birding can be an effective avenue to addressing these issues that society at large seems to continually struggle with? Yes. That's a resounding yes. And mm-hmm. the reason I think that is because of my mentors that I had in Madison. Um, when I started the program, I discovered the work of uh, Dr. Drew Lanham. Oh, yeah. He's from been Clemson. a guest on the podcast before. Yeah. He, oh, great. he's been on the podcast. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he came, we brought him with a grant to Madison to walk with kids. Oh, great. And, you know, then, then Drew did the um, incredible video. I think it's Nine Rules for the Black Bird Watcher. Mm-hmm. You know, so I had I thought about it a little bit, but because I did some work in in at Southern Poverty Law Center in Montgomery, Alabama, but I still hadn't really thought. As a white person, I just went outside and I assumed that you know, oh, I'm outside, I'm safe, and other people yeah, felt the same sure. way. Yeah. And you know, Drew's work in reading his beautiful memoir, um, The Home Place, which I use as a course text, that really started to change the way I thought. And his articles in magazines. Um, So yes, uh, I think it's really exciting. There are so many great new books and work by birds of color. Um, and, and I'm trying to use their materials as much as I can and, and, and get other people to read them. But I think white birders, yes, we can really step up 
and make a difference. Uh, if we just would go to some police commission meetings locally and use our talents for observation mm-hmm. um, in, 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 this, in this way, because working with kids, and some of my kids are kids of color, it's, it's sometimes I think, am I doing the wrong thing? No doubt. Sending these kids out with binoculars, and, and you know, Vermont's one of the whitest states in the nation. Okay, they're little boys now, but what's going to happen when they're teenagers? Yeah. And so I go to police commission meetings, not every month, but I do go and I've testified many times. I've been here eight years and I'm still working on these issues because Burlington has terrible problems with the police. So, you know, the right to go outside without fear. So what can we do about that? But I am excited at how the birding world is changing and I love these books that are coming out. Rodney Stott is another person. Oh, the, the Falconer. Yeah. Falconer. Mm-hmm. That's another course text in my in my class. Um, and I don't know if you know the work of Camille Dungy. She's not a birder, but she writes about gardening and the history of gardening, African-Americans as gardeners. Um, and she mentions birds in her work because of, you know, the food and the flowers. Mm-hmm. And, but she talks a lot about racism and the great outdoors. And Carolyn Finney, that's another wonderful um, author on this topic. Uh, I forget the name of her book, but you can look her up. She, she, um, her book came out of her PhD dissertation at Berkeley. She's now here in Burlington, and she's an incredible speaker. Mm-hmm. There's lots of mentors out there, um, and, but we have to do the homework. Yeah. Do you still talk with some of the students that you've worked with through the Birding to Change the World, some of the Madison students that you uh, engaged with uh, through your program? I do. Um, or they stay in contact with me. Yeah. I just had the great honor last uh, semester, I don't know, November or December, of sitting in online on the D- PhD defense oh, wow. of Dr. Krista Seidel, who was a student in the very first course I taught at wow. UW Madison. And she's now an international expert on avian malaria. And she works in Hawaii. Yeah. Wow. That's the avian malaria hotspot for sure. I sat there crying here in Burlington, watching her um, defend her dissertation and give a public presentation that was so powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, you know, like (laughs) that's a that's one of she stayed in touch with me, always contacts me every year. Some of the students contact me for references and some of them just want to know what I'm up to or they want to tell me what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Scattered all over the country and, and even all over the world doing great great work. It must be very gratifying. Yeah. It's so gratifying in the same with my students here in Vermont. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a small class. I get to know them really well. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a flock because we're working with children and lots of issues come up. Yeah. Um, so I get very close to them. I always am sad on the last day of class. Sometimes I cry, always. <laughs> like they're going, most of them are seniors. They're going out in the world. Who knows if I'll ever see them again. And, uh, but yeah, I'm very proud of them. I'm very lucky that I get to teach such wonderful young people. Yeah, for sure. Um, going back to, to Wild Warner, I was, I was so happy to read in the epilogue that it's still a presence in Madison. You mentioned also earlier that it, that it's still going on, still advocating for the park. So many well-intentioned and effective conservation organizations have trouble persisting. Once the people involved in the initial organization leave or get burnt out or get busy or whatever, how did you make sure that that didn't happen with Wild Warner? Well, that was something very intentional. Mm -hmm. So my husband and I moved there in 2007. 
um, two years after Katrina, and I started school. Uh, 2009, two years later, we realized the park was in trouble, and that's when we started organizing. And I was in the middle of doing a PhD, and I was working for the university full-time as a research uh, assistant. I said you know, to my husband, I don't have time to organize anything. I can't do this, but what are we going to do? And he said, well, look, we'll organize a group. I'll be the first chair. You keep doing the research part because I was finding the birds in the park. Mm-hmm. I found 141 species in this urban park, and over half of those birds were long-distance yeah. tropical migrants, right? Mm-hmm. So he said, you keep doing that and, and you start teaching and I'll be the first chair. But we, we sat down and we talked about it because I had, I had helped start a peace group in Montgomery, Alabama years mm-hmm. earlier. I've been a peacenik since I was a kid and I burned out and I learned yeah. you can't run everything. You can't do everything. That's not good organizing practice. So I said to Jim, I said, look, I love this place. I want to stay here forever. But the chances of me getting a good job here are slim and none. UW-Madison, like many big, great universities, doesn't hire their own. They want to go out there and do something, right? We're going to be here five, six, seven years, and then we have to leave. We cannot run this thing by ourselves. And so Jim was the chair, and he was very good because he's a journalist, and he knew how to organize and have good press releases. He was the chair for the first two or two years, maybe, and then... We recruited from within the group and there was great local talent. And so it was very intentional that we were not going to be in charge of stuff. And I was the first education coordinator. And after that, I wasn't even, I didn't even have an office. I just did the research. Mm-hmm. I taught the kids program, but there was a formal board and there were, you know, a bunch of officers doing all kinds of stuff. And those people are still doing yeah, it. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, it helps to know uh, when you're taking on something that, you don't have to do everything, which can sometimes be the case with those organizations. One person leaves and the next person comes up and they get stuck with all of it. Once, if you've done a a nice job, you know, making sure that all the responsibilities are filled by lots of different people, then it feels like one person comes in, your job is this and only this. That's easier to replace. It feels like. So you didn't, I guess you did a nice job making sure that that was the case and, and they're still there and still effective. But but also to be fair to them, we moved into a place where there were people who had lived around the park for decades and who loved it so much and they'd gotten worn down, but they'd yeah. never organized as a group. And so when we just had that meeting and, pe- and I put out emails and I put out flyers with the great horned owls image on it all over the place, calling mm-hmm. a public for a meeting, some of those people showed up. There were less than a dozen and they were diehard park lovers. And all we did was create a space mm-hmm. for them to come together. And then we became buddies. And after every awful meeting or not awful or whatever, public meetings, all the fighting, we'd go out and have beer and pizza. Mm-hmm. And then we started celebrating holidays together and having all kinds of parties in the park. We became comrades. So, so the organizing wasn't onerous. Mm-hmm. And I learned this in Central America, people trying to change doing incredible things, incredibly brave people. They had fun. It was a culture of joy and dancing Mm -hmm. and music. I mean, Nicaragua, Guatemala. It was so inspiring to me. And when I came back to the U.S., I thought, God, we don't really know how to do politics. It's it's just kind of drudgery, <laughs> right? Can't be, I don't want to go meeting. Well, what if people were dancing and singing or reciting poetry or doing street theater? Or going birding. <laughs> going birding, right? Yeah. yeah. Or, or building giant puppets or whatever. I mean, so 
Latin America had a huge, Central America had a huge influence on how I see that. But it was the people who lived around the park and who loved it so passionately. Mm -hmm. They were the ones who've carried the torch. And we had to leave because I got a job here. Yeah. And I had to go. I was done with the PhD. I didn't want to, but that's just life, (laughs) right? That's life. Yeah. The story of all of that is in Birding to Change the World, Trisha Kane's new memoir. It's available, I think, at the end of February. It might even be out by the time this this conversation releases. If not, you can find it wherever you find your, your books, uh, including all the big places that don't need me to advertise for them. But Trish, it was so nice to talk to you again. I'm so glad to hear that you're doing so well. This book is fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Nate. Good luck with everything you're doing. Thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Don't forget to join the ABA if you love this podcast. You'll be eligible for a lot of great benefits, including our fantastic magazines, all the cool online stuff. We keep adding more and more online stuff, including our magazine archive and the identification portal, discounts to partners like OM Systems, Speedio Books, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and more. You can get information about how to join at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Jeff Davis and family of Duluth, Minnesota, David Kaufman of Arlington, Virginia, Gary Olness of Plaisto, New Hampshire, David Sherna, David and James Sherna of Fort Collins, Colorado, and Kristen Tansky of Albuquerque, New Mexico, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as one of the reasons for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who loved Morgan Freeman's role in the film depicting the famous Michigan Subaru hacking scandal, The Red Shank Redemption. Technical production is by John Lowry, who appreciates that Morgan Freeman has been such an advocate for Chesapeake Bay shorebird conservation as depicted in his thriller, Peep Impact. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, who applaud Freeman's Academy Award-winning performance as a man deeply invested and high-stakes flycatcher identification. Million Dollar Phoebe. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Blue Sky, we are at ABA Birds. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom. We'll see you next week. <laughs>